listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to distinguished professor in electrical engineering and computer sciences at the University of California, Berkeley, Edward A. Lee. What we need is a new philosophy of technology that is much more integrated with our understanding of culture and human processes. Edward shared his thoughts on why a symbiotic co-evolution of humans and machines is more likely than the eventual obsolescence of humanity due to artificial intelligence, why the datarist belief in human cognition resembling computation is likely wrong, and how recent technological developments resemble the emergence of a new life form. Your new book suggests that humans have less control over the development of technology than we might actually think. In fact, it argues that the development of technology might actually be a co-evolutionary process. So I guess my first question is, what does it mean for technology to evolve? You know, in the book, I coined the term digital creationism for the hypothesis that all of these pieces of software and digital technology that we've created are the result of top-down intelligent design. And, you know, the reality is I've, I've been writing software for about 40 years. I, I started writing embedded software in the 1970s. And for my entire career, I thought that the product of my work was the result of my deliberate decisions in my brain about how things should come out. And I I'm a little embarrassed that it took me so long to realize that that's not really the case. And, you know, I, I could draw an analogy. It's a little bit like, you know, if you come home from the grocery store with a bag of groceries, you feel like you've accomplished something. It's a personal accomplishment to have, you know, stocked your refrigerator. But is it really? I mean, there are so many factors that played into that accomplishment the road system, the car that took you there, the economic system that enables, you know, paying for the grocery bagger, uh, all of these things that are really much bigger than your personal accomplishment. And the personal part of it is actually relatively small. And I've realized that the same is true of most of the software that, that I developed over the course of my career. Uh, most of that software is really mutations of previous software and my thought processes as I develop the software are very strongly shaped by the programming languages and the development tools and so on that really guide my thinking. So this view of these technology products as purely the result of top-down intelligent design is really very misleading. You take issue with digital creationism because in a funny sort of way, in culture, we assume that the designer of the technology has full agency over how it's created. And this idea of digital creationism encompasses all of these assumptions that we have, and you believe that that's no longer the case. And I just wonder, how did you come to that understanding? You've used that example there, but I just wonder at what point you, you realize that in actual fact... Even though I am the developer of the software or of the digital technology, I don't have full agency over it. There, there is a co-creation process that's occurring here. I'm actually not the first person to postulate this thesis. Uh, in fact, the first time that it entered my head was when I was reading this wonderful book by George Dyson uh, called Turing's Cathedral. Towards the end of this book, Dyson talks about a visit that he made to Google where he got a tour of the data center with its thousands of servers and that the thousands of servers in this data center sort of made him think of it as kind of a, a living thing that was actually nurturing the humans that were taking care of it and developing it. And he talks in this book about this sort of feedback relationship between the humans taking care of the machines and the machines taking care of the humans. So that really got me thinking, and I started to run with that. And I think one of the things that bothered me in, in some sense about Dyson's argument was that I actually had a misconception about how evolution works. And I think it's, a, it's actually a fairly common misconception even today. My understanding of Darwinian evolution was that largely random mutations would occur in DNA due to, for example, alpha particles or chemicals in the environment or something like that, sometimes those mutations would lead to a, a beneficial variation in uh, the organism. Most of the time they don't, and the organism doesn't actually survive the mutation. 
But actually, biologists have discovered that that sort of process of random mutation can't account for evolution that we see in the wild. For example, the evolution of antibiotic-resistant bacteria occurs much too rapidly to be explainable by that kind of mechanism. Instead, there's a whole suite of other mechanisms that are involved in evolutionary, in biological evolutionary processes that have interventions that almost start to look like agency, where viruses intervene, splicing DNA of one microbe into another, for example. Or I learned in the, in the course of researching this book, learned about uh, a thesis called endosymbiosis, which is the thesis for how eukaryotic cells have evolved. Those are the cells that are in all plants and animals, and they're cells that have organelles in them. They have nucleus and mitochondria and so on. It turns out, you know, my previous naive view was that, well, you know, at some point, a random mutation occurred in a DNA that caused a cell division to result in an organelle getting created inside one of those cells. That's probably not the way it came about. Lynn Margulis is one of the people who has really um, promoted and I think um, made respectable this, this thesis of uh, endosymbiosis, which is that you can think of it in a cartoon-like way. You can think of a bacterium as swallowing another bacterium, and instead of digesting it, making it part of its metabolism, and turning this relationship into a symbiosis rather than just a food source. That kind of evolutionary mechanism is really very different from the kind of random mutation that I had thought about happening that was happening before. So these kinds of biological mechanisms that have been have recently come to light actually have pretty good analogies in software development. If you think of what a software developer does, right? A software developer doesn't start with a blank page in a text editor and start writing code on that blank page. Nobody does that. Maybe students taking their very first introductory programming class might be asked to do that, but even that even then they're they're always given some piece of code to start from. And you know what really happens in software development is that programmers take pieces of code from here, pieces of code from there. They go to GitHub, uh, they they go to Stack Overflow to look for ways of doing things in the software. They use libraries that come with their programming languages, like uh, the standard template library and C plus plus and so on. And they're really just stitching together pieces of code, and their own little handwritten pieces of code end up being a rather small part of the result. This is really quite analogous to what a virus does when a virus takes a piece of DNA from one bacterium and splices it into the DNA of another bacterium. So I use the term codome in my book for these chunks of code that get realigned and recombined by the software developer to create a new piece of software. And then, of course, that new piece of software, most software that gets written dies. Uh, most of the software that I've written is uh, you know, archived in some backup storage somewhere, and it never sees the light of day again, never gets executed again, right? And that's the, the reality is that that's true of most software. But, but some software, you re, when you release it into the wild, actually takes off and starts to thrive in this ecosystem. And then the ecosystem itself provides kind of a feedback loop where, you know, some of the software that gets developed ends up being in libraries. And then those libraries get used further by other software developers some of the software that gets developed ends up becoming part of software development tools. So one of, one of the interesting things that I realized when I started to understand this process a little bit better is um, a lot of people who are very worried about AI these days are arguing that there is an inevitable point where the machines will learn to program themselves, Okay, that AI is going to lead to machines writing their own software and developing their own software. One of the things that I realized is that actually machines teach humans to program. The software development tools that we use today are actually teaching the programmers how to write code. Today, I write software a lot, and uh, my software productivity is orders of magnitude better than it was just 10 years ago because the tools are guiding my thought processes, helping me construct that code, actually showing me how to construct that code. And then, of course, there's this feedback where some of the code that gets developed goes and then influences further software development and the thought processes of other software developers. Anyway, this process is really not 
like a top-down intelligent design. So, so this is really what you mean by the idea of co-evolution. Humans have, a, have an impact on the development of technology and vice versa. Software then impacts the way in which humans intervene into what becomes successful software and what becomes obsolete software. I just want to talk a little bit more, though, about that relationship that we have with our machines. Because in the book, you posit various different types of uh, symbiosis that we can potentially have with our machines, whether it's a mutualistic symbiosis or an obligate symbiosis. I just wonder where we are in our, in our current relationship with, with machines as we understand them today. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one observation, I think, is that the relationship between humans and machines is highly asymmetric today. The fact is that we tend to think that the technology has led to enormously complex systems, but actually all of the computer technology on the planet compared to a single human being, the complexity relationship is highly asymmetric. Humans are far more complex as machines than the whole suite of computers on the planet. I think that our relationship with the machines may be more analogous to our relationship with our gut biome. It's kind of that much asymmetry or more, right? We depend very heavily on our gut biome as we depend very heavily on our machines. I mean, imagine what would happen on the planet if we turned off all the computers today. It would be disastrous. It would be probably the impact would be much bigger than the coronavirus uh, in terms of loss of life and mass starvation and you know so forth right I mean if you shut down all the computers today it'd be really disastrous so we're really you know very dependent on these machines we're also very dependent on our gut biome right if you kill the gut biome then that does occasionally happen right if you overdo antibiotics for example you can end up killing way too many of your gut biome and you get very sick extremely sick it can kill you in fact I think that we're currently in a very asymmetric but largely symbiotic relationship. Now, people fear that it's going to turn into kind of a parasitic relationship where the machines will no longer need the humans and the humans will become the parasites on this associated life form. That's certainly a possibility. I mean, evolutionary processes are complex processes, so they're very it's very hard to predict where they're going to go. But personally, I think that's pretty unlikely. I think we're much more likely to see a refinement of the symbiotic relationship. That doesn't mean that things won't go wrong, right? Things will go wrong. But the things that go wrong should be should be thought of as pathologies. They're illnesses in a symbiotic relationship. I think a lot of the sort of doomsday books that are out there think of it as more like, you know, a war with an alien species. But it's more like an illness in a symbiotic relationship. And we we have illnesses like that in biology. If something goes wrong with your relationship with your gut biome, you can get quite sick. If a computer virus like the WannaCry uh, ransomware virus that kind of took off in 2017 starts to run wild, it creates a huge disruption for human beings. And you can really see how that kind of disruption actually is an illness. You can also see how, you know, the effect that social media has on our culture, and we all worry about the digital persona of our kids and things like that. When things aren't going the way we would like to see them going, we can think of this as an illness, as opposed to a war of the worlds. It's not that the machines are an alien species coming to try to take over. It's more like continual evolution that can result, of course, in illnesses that must be treated as illnesses. You spend a lot of time in the book challenging this idea that what will eventually emerge is human level AI. And, and emergence is, is one of these things that seems to be tricky because it's the way in which we explain away life. There, there's all these processes that happen and, and matter comes together and suddenly consciousness emerges and, and here consciousness is. But everything can't be explained away by this tricky thing called emergence, can it? It's, it's really a lazy way to assume that we will get human level AI. The argument for um, the emergence of machine consciousness is that, well, our brains are a matter that came together and suddenly consciousness popped into existence. Well, surely once enough silicon comes together and enough networks come together, something like consciousness might just pop into existence, might just emerge into existence. And you challenge that notion. Yeah, I actually challenge it from several different 
angles. And I think maybe it's worth focusing on two of them, right? One one is that there's a there's a very strong background assumption that a lot of people make, particularly my colleagues in computer science, that human cognition is a computational process at its root. That's a background assumption. And for many of my colleagues that I talk to, it's actually, they say, of course, we, we all learned about the universal Turing machine. And they misinterpret the universal Turing machine as a universal machine. It's not a universal machine. A universal Turing machine is a is a machine that can implement any Turing machine, but Turing machines are a very particular kind of machine. They have very distinct properties. They're algorithmic. Everything in them proceeds as a sequence of steps, a sequence of discrete steps. All of their information is digital. It's discrete and finite, and they're terminating processes. The sequence of discrete steps has to stop. I think the only property of those three that humans have is the terminating one. We all will terminate, but we're not algorithmic, actually. In fact, algorithms are pretty difficult for human cognition. There is evidence that people have deliberately, or perhaps just been misled, to misinterpret, to say, well, ultimately, the mechanisms underlying the processes in the human brain must be digital. So they point to things like the discrete firing of neurons. You know, this is a thesis that started with McCulloch and Pitts in the in the 1940s, and it developed kind of into a philosophy in the 1960s, led by uh, Hillary Putnam, who you know talked about multiple realizability was the term that he used, and the idea was that well, neurons are ultimately just realizing logic functions. And if you just replicate those logic functions in some other machine, and we know how to make silicon that replicates logic functions, then you will replicate all of the processes of the brain. But the problem is that this actually ignores a lot of what is actually going on in the brain. One of the key things it ignores is the timing of the neuron firing. And biologists know, uh, neuroscientists know that timing is an extremely important part of how neurons work. And that's completely ignored by this basic logic function thesis. So there are several other assumptions that underlie this uh, this basic premise that our cognition must be a computational process. I I borrowed the term from Yuval Noah Harari's book, uh, his wonderful book called Homo Deus, and he coined the term dataism for kind of a faith. And I actually argue in my book that this is really ultimately a faith that these processes are at their root computational. It's uh, it's a faith with actually rather weak evidence for it. We fall so easily into the trap of believing that humans are similar to machines because of the way in which we use metaphor to describe the human brain as a computer and whatever consciousness is, is software. We used to have metaphors comparing the brain to a machine when we talk about our thinking as cogs turning. And now when I'm thinking, I'm processing what you're saying. And we've taken that metaphor and we've, we've almost run with it. And that seems to be what's at the core of datarism, a, a misunderstanding that metaphor is what's actually there, what's actually occurring, what's actually happening in the human brain. And it just fits the uh, best technology, technological description we have of the day. Uh, is, is that what datarism is or is there more nuance there? There is a little more nuance, right? And one of the important points is I actually take the stand in my book that let's assume that, that the brain actually is a machine, okay? That's not the core of the dataist thesis. The core of the data is thesis is that it's a computational machine. And that's a special kind of machine, right? It's a machine that operates in discrete steps on digital data. That's what the universal Turing machine is all about. No one has invented a universal machine. Um, they've only invented a universal Turing machine, which is a special kind of algorithmic machine. So even if we accept the hypothesis that the human brain actually is a machine, that doesn't lead you to the conclusion that it can be replicated by a computer because the computers are all Turing machines. That's what they are. And there's a second point, a uh, second angle from which I attack this uh, hypothesis, this dataist hypothesis, 
which borrows from a, a thesis that has become quite popular in psychology in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, which is embodied cognition. And uh, this was, I think, very nicely advocated by Esther Tellen, who was one of the leading psychologists who, who developed this thesis. And she argued that the cognitive mind isn't something that resides inside the brain, getting sensory, sensory data from the environment and then doing actions in the environment. She argued that the cognitive mind actually is the interaction between the brain and its environment, that it's that interaction that makes the cognition, not what's going on in your brain. That is actually, I think, very interesting. If you look at that from a technological perspective, one of the things that we're seeing is that robotics is much more difficult than software. If you're building software that just operates on data, that field has been progressing very rapidly. Robotics has been progressing much more slowly, right? We make robots that can fold towels very slowly and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's, a, it's extremely difficult to get these digital algorithmic machines to meaningfully interact with their environment. There's been this huge optimism about self-driving cars, but they seem to be actually stalled right now. We're not seeing them getting deployed as rapidly as many people were predicting. And the technology has proved to be much more difficult because these machines have quite a bit of difficulty interacting with their environment. And that interaction with that in, with the environment, with the with the messy analog physical world, makes those machines much less computational. They're much less about algorithms and much more about an interaction with with a physical dynamics. So this this idea of embodied cognition also suggests that in order to get human le level AI, we're going to have to have these machines interacting with their physical environment much more than they currently are and that that interaction is going to be much more difficult to design, and it's going to make the machines less digital and less algorithmic. So, I mean, I mean it could turn out that we're, uh, we're not a computer or a brain as a computer as we understand it now, but it could be a, a quantum device that we, we don't fully understand. It could be a number of things, but I, I want to look a little closely at that idea of how we understand human beings as machines, because this misunderstanding is also why you've made such a compelling argument against the idea and the possibility of mind uploading, the ability to take the brain and port it to another, perhaps silicon uh, substrate. In your previous book, you argued that mind uploading is probably unlikely simply because if the mind was information, then surely that information could be inherited in the same way that you inherit from your mother and your father their genetics and that is the basis under which your body is formed but when it comes to your mind you don't inherit your mother and your father's memories therefore memory might not be something reducible to information so I, could, I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about why uh, mind uploading is such a problematic idea within this context when people talk about information because we are surrounded by a relatively new technology, information technology that is rooted in computers, many people assume that what we mean by information is digital information. That every piece of information can be represented by a sequence of binary digits. But if you look at the root of what the word information really means, and you look at the information theories that have been developed about how to understand what information really is, it's not restricted to being digital. In fact, digital information is a, is a tiny, tiny subset of the information that is potentially out there in the world. So the question of whether you can upload your brain, uh, it turns out there's a really wonderful mathematical result developed by Claude Shannon at, when he was at Bell Labs in the 1950s. He showed that if you have a communication channel that can convey information from one place to another, if the communication channel is imperfect in any way, which every communication channel is imperfect, then the channel cannot carry more than a finite number of bits of information. So if in order to upload our brain or our, our mind, we have to assume that our mind is representable by a finite amount, a number of bits of information. There's actually no valid reason to assume that. And in fact, 
I argued in my previous book that that assumption can never actually be a scientific thesis because it's untestable by experiment. You cannot construct an experiment that would ever falsify that hypothesis. To prove that statement requires some math. In this new book, I avoid all that and I just say, I, you know, let's, let's just cast doubt on the idea that the information contained in my mind that represents my mind, that is my mind, let's assume it is information. Okay. I'm willing to assume that. I, I in fact, I believe it, it is, it is information, but let's cast some doubt to this hypothesis that it's digital information. The hypothesis that it is, is actually untestable, uh, which means that, you know, if someone came and offered you a product to upload your mind to a computer and you decide to try it, it will actually be impossible for anyone outside of you, perhaps, to know whether it worked. It cannot be done. No one will ever know whether it worked. I mean, what you're saying in many ways feels like, again, this 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 misunderstanding of metaphor, because DNA can be re- reducible to data, but that doesn't mean that Gattaca, the, the representation of DNA in information will one day just bounce up and emerge as biology. It's that issue of uh, where this representation becomes matter. Is, is, is that right? Human DNA molecule has about two gigabytes of data in it, which is about a thousand times less than the laptop that I'm using to talk to you now. It's actually not a lot of information. And there's this, you know, I, I refer to it as the DNA fallacy where people naively assume that DNA encodes humans. And therefore, I, as an entity, am reducible to two gigabytes of data. But there's a problem with that, okay? I mean, a lot of problems with it. But one of them is that I, as an entity, as a biological entity, am part of a process that started four billion years ago, roughly, and has been completely uninterrupted for the four billion years. There's a whole sequence of chemical biological processes that are 4 billion years old that I am part of with no gaps in that process. If there were any gaps in that process, I wouldn't be here. So how much information was conveyed along that process compared to the information in the DNA? My argument is that that process is actually capable of carrying vastly more information than two gigabytes of data. So biologists are, 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 are now starting to think that using CRISPR technology, for example, they will be able to recreate the woolly mammoth. But how are they going to do it? They're not going to take DNA of a woolly mammoth that they find and then feed that into a machine that creates a woolly mammoth. No, what they're going to do is they're going to splice that DNA into a germline cell of an elephant and then they're going to implant that in the womb of a mother elephant. And then the mother elephant and the womb and the cell into which they put the DNA, all those carry information. That information is potentially vastly more than the two gigabytes of information in the DNA itself. And so there's this misconception that since DNA is digital, humans must be ultimately digital. It's just, it's just, an incorrect conclusion. We've focused a lot on how humans might be like machines, but really at the core of the book is this idea that software artifacts could be considered living. And in many ways, machines might actually resemble living creatures. And could you tell me more about these things called living digital beings or LBDs? When I was working on earlier drafts of this book, my working title was Living Digital Beings. And throughout the book, I referred to them as LDBs. And the publisher didn't like that word at all. They thought it was a silly word and that it would undermine a serious message to use a silly word for, the, for this. But it's, it's a metaphor that is trying to get us to think about our relationship with the machines in a different way, right? Instead of thinking of them as our tools over which we ultimately have complete control, think of them more as evolving beings in our ecosystem, right? They're things that we have relationships with that affect us as much as we affect them. We're not just using them, they're using us, okay? Now, they're not using us in the sense of of having 
agency or deliberate uh, decision making or anything like that. Not yet. I do look in my book at what it might take to, for them to get there. But they're using us in ways that can be thought of as quite analogous to our gut biome. So it turns out I learned in the course of reading, uh, researching for this book that your, your gut biome will actually synthesize proteins that release hormones that make you crave certain foods that the gut biome like. They make your brain, they control your brain to have you crave certain things so that they can be healthier, right? And of course, they're not doing this in a deliberate way. They're doing it as a result of a Darwinian evolution because it's a beneficial thing for them and not too terribly harmful to you. Well, you know, the digital machines that we work with also mess with our brains and create cravings. I mean, look at Twitter addiction. Think about how Twitter is controlling the brain of Donald Trump right now. It's very clear that there, there have been tremendous floods of hormones in his brain, making him extremely angry. And yet he's yelling at people in the, in the White House to you know, issue executive orders to constrain these companies. Twitter is resulting in the releasing of these hormones in his brain and affecting his behavior as a consequence. And his behavior, because he's powerful, is going to affect Twitter. Um, and in fact, the whole system around social media so there's this feedback loop, right? So if you think about this kind of relationship between the humans and the machines in this more analogous way, as if we're in an ecosystem, we are participants in an ecosystem rather than them just being passive tools under our control. That's the metaphor that I'm after here. So, so in many ways, it's not the fault of the technology platform or the uh, machines that we might be addicted to. It actually might be the fault of the humans. And it, it really is a, a feedback loop to change our priorities to then change the biases of the software. We're, we're so quick to blame the addiction caused by social media, but in actual fact, it's only addictive because we're giving it the feedback that it wants to see and then optimizes to be addictive. Is, is that the right understanding of what you're saying that? That's exactly right, Luke. The key thing is that I think this misunderstanding that we have of the relationship with technology leads to ineffective regulation, mm -hmm. right? We want to regulate uh, on the basis of the assumption that if addiction is the result of the technology, that that was a deliberate decision by some software engineers or some Silicon Valley executives to make that addiction happen. The argument that I make in my book is it actually came about in a rather different way. The technology that we use is the result of a selection process, right? We think, okay, well, you know, Facebook was the result of a, a brilliant mind who created this thing. But actually there were thousands of other pieces of software that were really doing very similar things, most of which died in, and went extinct in this competitive ecosystem. And one of them survived through a selection process. The ones that survive are the ones that propagate most effectively. And getting humans addicted to them is what results in that propagation. And so it's a completely Darwinian process. It's natural selection, right? The creatures that thrive in an ecosystem are the ones that have the procreative prowess that are able to spread themselves. And getting humans to be addicted to them is a fantastically powerful way to spread yourself. I'm thinking that if we want to find ways to effectively steer the process to, towards favorable outcomes for humans, we need to understand that that's not just about getting the engineers to design things ethically. That's not going to result in the outcomes that we want unless you know, this digital creationism hypothesis is actually true. I believe it is not true. And therefore, what we need to do is understand this as a dynamic ecosystem with a lot of feedback loops. And when you have feedback loops like this, right, humans getting addicted to technology, which then causes that technology to propagate, which then makes it even more addictive as it gets developed because there's this feedback loop, right? If you, when you, Whenever you have a feedback loop, you can intervene at any point in that feedback loop. You don't have to just intervene at the technology developer. There's other places to intervene. So for example, you could educate the users, right? Have them understand more 
how the technology is playing a role in our society. If in our schools, we had serious courses that looked at the cultural context of technology, we might have our kids growing up with a more sophisticated understanding of and a more sophisticated way of relating with the technology. That's an intervention point that I don't think we've even tried at this point. So, so in many ways, the idea that we're being controlled by these platforms is really just a byproduct of a belief in digital creationism. The idea that the thing that will fix this is top-down regulation because the technology must have been designed top-down by a human being or an engineer. But in actual fact, what you're suggesting there is much more nuanced. It is much more nuanced. It's a much more Darwinian process, right? Where each piece of software that shows up in this ecosystem is a mutation of some previous piece of software. And that mutation was certainly affected by software engineers and by executives in the companies that pay for the software engineers. It was affected by them, but it wasn't really created from scratch by them. It's a mutation of a previous thing. And most of those mutations die out. The ones that don't die out are the ones that thrive in the ecosystem. That process is really what's driving the development of the technology much more than the deliberate decision-making of individuals. Viewing digital technology as a new life form, it feels like a very controversial idea because it brings into question this idea of what you mean by life and how something can be alive or alive, artificially alive in the case of artificial life, or exhibit a form of liveness. We recognize the the traits within a piece of software that triggers the part of our brain that makes us think that it has or exhibits some form of vitality. Could you help uh, explain a little bit more by what you mean by life when you talk about this idea of living digital beings? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I, I should point out that this idea of thinking of technology as living, uh, again, is not an idea that I originated. I actually first heard it from Kevin Kelly, who was the founding executive director of Wired magazine. And he wrote a book, a wonderful book called What Technology Wants. And he has a wonderful TED talk on this topic of thinking of technology as, as a living thing. He coined the term the technium for a what he called the seventh kingdom of life and described it as a new life form on our planet. I started looking at his argument in some depth and there's some problems with his argument because he includes in technology even things that I to me are very inanimate, right? He talks about a coronet, right, for example, which is a musical instrument as if it were a living thing. But to me, a living thing is a process, not a thing. It can't be a static object. It's got to be a process. It's the process that, that's the living thing. And digital technology and software is a much better match to that metaphor because an executing piece of software is a process. It's, a, it's purely a process. And so I started looking at, well, what aspects of living does that process have? So if you pick a particular example, my favorite example is uh, Wikipedia which I use throughout my book. And by the way, I should mention that I've made a public commitment to contribute all of the royalties from this book to the Wikimedia Foundation. They will get the profits, not me, because Wikipedia is my favorite living digital being today. And, you know, Wikipedia was born, I think, 19 years ago, 20 years ago, somewhere in that range, right? And it was born on a single server and it started reacting to its environment which is, you know, reacting to stimulus that coming in over the internet. And it's been running as a continual process ever since then for the last 19 or 20 years. The servers on which it originally run, ran no longer exist. It's running on a completely different set of servers today, just like you and I are running on a largely completely different set of cells than we had when we were born, right? But the process, not the individual servers, is what is the living thing. So in my book, I look in some depth at what other aspects of living does it have, right? Does it have um, the ability to reproduce? And Wikipedia, I think, has arguably reproduced very prolifically. I mean, if you go to, there's many, many wiki pages all around the world, thousands, millions probably of wiki pages uh, all around the world serving lots of different functions that are arguably progeny 
from Wikipedia. And they've inherited traits in the form of these pieces of codome. So they have inheritance as well. They even have processes that we think of as very biological, like homeostasis. Homeostasis is this, this ability to maintain stable internal conditions. So like, you know, our bodies maintain a stable temperature. Well, the um, computer-controlled air conditioning systems in the Wikipedia server centers are maintaining a stable internal temperature. So they even have properties like that. You don't want to push this analogy too far, right? But the fact is that it's a useful way, I think, to think about how we relate to technology. And that's really the emphasis of my book. That's what I'm trying to get us to do is look at our relationship with technology through new eyes that are more able to give a more sophisticated understanding of what the processes actually are and how we can nudge them. We're not going to be able to control them. That's one of my points. This isn't about controlling technology development. Nobody knows how to control an evolutionary process, but you can influence it. If you know how it works or have a better understanding of how it works, you're more likely to be able to effectively influence it. Well, the great thing about what you've just said there is it reorients how we think about technology. In other words, technology and the idea of AI doesn't become scary anymore because if you're arguing that it co-evolves with us as human beings using Darwinian forces, what it's doing is driving uh, digital technology to be complementary rather than competitive. It will find that its best option is not to, to kill us and make us obsolete, but in actual fact, keep us around and to work with us that's reliant on us. And in the same way that we have found out that we are so reliant on the internet and all of the processes that the internet enables, whether it's uh, communication or banking or the multitude of products and services that now our life uh, runs on. That's challenging. That's a challenging way to think about technology. That really puts a spanner in the works for all of the individuals who are the AI doomsayers who go, no, 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 no. this thing is going to realize it doesn't need us around. How do you think they're approaching this this idea that it's not going to evolve past us, but continuously and, and forever evolve with us? The current pandemic that we're in, I think it can offer some lessons here, right? One of the things that has made it so much worse in some ways than some of the previous pandemics is that the the viruses have been much more lethal. They kill the host. Okay. They kill the host very quickly with uh, high confidence, right? The the mortality rate of the of the coronavirus is is not quite so high, not nearly as high as some of these others. And that has actually helped it spread. That's a natural part of a Darwinian evolutionary process, right? If you have a relationship between two living processes and one of them is extremely destructive to the other, if it's also dependent on the other, it's likely that they're both going to die out or at least one of them is going to die out, right? And so I think that right now the machines are very dependent on humans, okay? They're not going to progress very rapidly if the humans simply stop working on them, right? Uh, the humans are absolutely a big part of their procreate, procreative processes. Uh, and so the machines are, are currently very dependent on us. And in that kind of a relationship, as it evolves, there is a tendency to then mutations that would lead to pathologies tend to get suppressed. So we see this, for example, computer viruses. Like I, I talk about the, the WannaCry ransomware computer virus, the way that humans reacted to that was to inoculate the machines with essentially antibodies that would suppress this mutation of this piece of software. That's a natural thing that's going to happen when a pathological phenomenon emerges from this evolutionary process. So we're going to have a tendency, the pathological phenomena are going to appear, but we're going to fight them. And that feedback loop leads to a likelihood that it's the symbiosis that gets strengthened rather than the competition. So that largely is what you know makes me relatively much more optimistic than many of these doomsayer books that say, well, we're just going to be completely sidelined because the technology is going to realize it no longer needs humans. In the partnership between humans and machines, it's actually the humans that are the scarier part, not the yeah. machines, that through our deliberate decisions in 
choosing to develop certain kinds of technology that are by intent destructive to humans, that's where the really scary outcomes from the technology will come. Not from the AIs just learning to program themselves and then realizing they don't need humans anymore. I, I don't think that's the kind of mechanisms that we're going to see leading to the really destructive effects. But we've also designed technologies that enhance what it means to be human. And you look at some of these in the book in the form of the intellectual prosthesis and the cognitive prosthesis that we've created. In what way has technology become an extension of our minds and changed the way that we remember and that we communicate? Are these neural prostheses, these intellectual prostheses, are they making us smarter or are they making us dumber? I actually think that we're at least collectively getting smarter, if not individually. I personally, I could not have written a book like this without Google and Wikipedia and a number of other technological tools that I used to build this argument and to understand the nuances. The reality is that a search engine is able to make links between pieces of information in a far more powerful way than any human brain can. And it affects our thinking. It affects the meaning of the information, right? When, when two pieces of information come up early in a Google search, it can change what those pieces of information mean to the humans. It can develop in that way. I quote in my book a conversation that a historian of science had with Richard Feynman, the physicist, who the historian had found handwritten notes that Feynman had used when he was developing his, his uh, quantum electrodynamics uh, theory. And the historian described these notes as a record of Feynman's thinking. And Feynman said, no, those aren't a record of my thinking. Those are my thinking. The historian says, no, the thinking was in your brain and this is just the recording on paper. And Feynman said, no. That's not actually the way it works. The thinking was happening on the paper and in my brain together. The paper and the pencil is an intellectual prosthesis that enables a way of thinking that cannot be done without the paper and pencil. That's what I mean by an intellectual prosthesis. And, and, and the way that we use technology is way more powerful today than just pencil and paper. And it is affecting our way of thinking and affecting what we can accomplish with our thinking very strongly. And the way we've coded the world has an effect on the development of the brain and the, the evolution of the brain itself. What you're referring to there, the idea that the brain can live outside the body is what Merlin Donald used to call external symbolic storage. The idea that we can port memories into external symbolic sources that then we can revisit. And, and that must be having a, a massive effect on the way in which our brain develops. Surely there's an impact on, on this technology or on our own biological evolution. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, wonderful work uh, going on these days in, in understanding, for example, how our ability today to record and organize and sort vast numbers of digital photographs is affecting our memory. What it actually means to remember events has changed uh, over time because of the technology. It, it does affect our brains. And, and it's, it's affecting them from a biological standpoint as well. You talk about in the book how our brains are getting smaller. Yeah. The human brain is about 10% smaller than it was 10,000 years ago. How could that possibly be a favorable evolutionary outcome? And one of the arguments is that, well, it can be because over, the ten, over that 10,000 years, we've become increasingly reliant on external prostheses to augment our brain capabilities, to deal with aspects of our cognitive lives that our brains are not very good at. So for example, working with numbers or uh, having reliable records in order to be able to make transactions. Um, I talk in my book about the discovery of the Sumerian tablets, which are you know from about more than 4,000 years ago. And when these were first discovered, they had to be deciphered because nobody knew the the writing system. And it was profoundly disappointing when they discovered that most of what was written on these tablets was really quite boring. It was mostly bureaucratic record keeping. So the tablets were really functioning as cognitive prostheses that enabled a society to develop in a certain way that would not have been possible without this kind of writing system. And it's 
compensating for deficiencies, for our inability in our heads to do certain things, work with numbers reliably, work with, with records reliably. We're just not very good at that. Now, now, all of these ideas, they raise some challenges on how we understand and operate with machines. And the first of those, I guess, is our ability to become cyborgs. Would you argue, Edward, that we are already cyborgs because of the way in which we're co-evolving with technology? Or is there still yet a point at which uh, we may find technology integrates in a more embodied way, I guess? Well, I think the really remarkable thing that is happening right now is that ever since at least the invention of writing, technology has become a part of our cognitive processes. But this has really accelerated with digital technology and the mechanisms that we have today. I think it's accelerated very dramatically. The acceleration itself is evidence of the effect that this is having on our cognitive minds, right? The fact that we can actually put together unbelievably complex technologies that were completely unimaginable 20 years ago is in large part because our brains are getting better able to do these kinds of things, to deal with this complexity by using these cognitive processes in order to do them. It's having a very big effect on us. And whenever you have, I think you get these rapid bursts of evolution right now, okay, with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing a burst of evolution in our relationship with technology. Uh, I used to think, I, you know, I, I used to have a really pretty embarrassingly naive understanding of evolution. I thought it was a slow, gradual process, right? But biologists actually know that, no, it's more like a punctuated equilibrium. You get huge disruptions in an ecosystem and a lot of stuff changes and mutations that survive that huge disruption tend to look quite different from what was before the disruption. We're seeing exactly that right now with this coronavirus pandemic. We're becoming digital humans. The fact that you and I are not sitting in that wonderful space in London in front of a live audience is a result of the, of the pandemic. And the fact that we are all, you know, I've been learning how to turn sloppy Zoom recorded talks into something a little more polished by, you know, doing some editing. And none of that I was doing two months ago. And everyone around us, we're interacting with all our friends through digitally mediated technology. It's having a huge impact on our relationship with technology. This is a punctuation point in a punctuated equilibrium. And we're going to see that our relationship with technology when we emerge from this is going to be quite different from what it was before. And the technology is going to be different as well. Uh, we're going to see a very rapid set of changes in what technology we use and how we use it. And what's so refreshing about reading your book is it is very different from the sorts of uh, writing about AI and robotics that we've seen, because they always seem to end up in the conclusion that eventually we will have human-like machines, machines in the image and likeness of humans. And really what you're arguing is, no, it's always going to be this co-evolutionary process. But when you start uh, sharing ideas like machines might be life or they have similarity to life, it does provoke this idea of what could happen if machines eventually really did become uh, living. How would we deal with the idea that machines were alive? And also, how would we recognize those machines as being alive? What would they need to develop for us to understand them as uh, quote-unquote conscious or or living? In many ways, it feels like accountability and agency will be the two things that we would need to identify. How will we go about identifying the possibility of independent, autonomous machine life? Uh, let me first say emphatically that being conscious and being alive are not the same thing. Most of the living things around us, we would not ascribe any agency to. We don't hold them responsible for their actions, and uh, yet they're alive, right? I mean, the plants in our garden or, or the microbes in our gut, right? We don't think of them as having any consciousness. But it turns out that consciousness is not a binary thing. It's not something you either have or don't have. Douglas Hofstadter writes very nicely about this in, in his book, uh, I Am a Strange Loop. It's, it's more of a gradation. So 
people have done studies on worms that have relatively simple nervous systems, right? Just a couple hundred neurons, for example. And it turns out that worms have an ability, these worms with just a couple hundred neurons have an ability to distinguish self from non-self in a certain way. If their senses detect motion under their body, they can tell the difference between motion that was caused by themselves moving versus motion that was caused by some external event. Being able to tell that difference is important in the development of a sense of self, right? The sense of self that humans have, of course, is much more sophisticated than that, but it has that essential element. The fact that when my peripheral vision detects a hand waving in my face, my brain doesn't react in alarm because my brain knows that it made my hand do that. So that's distinguishing self from non-self, and it's something that is an intrinsic part of our biology, and it is something that actually a lot of the software out there has already has that ability. It's got at least those kinds of low-level mechanisms. So I look in my book at what it would take for those low-level mechanisms to develop into things that ultimately do involve agency, what we would call agency and what we would call consciousness. And the conclusion I come to in the book is rather nuanced, and it's not a simple story. And that's probably the part of the book that's the most difficult to read. But the essential argument there is that if machines ever do develop a first-person self, a sense of self that we can ascribe agency to, the argument that I build is that we will actually never be sure that we've accomplished that that we will never really be able to tell whether that's true of those machines. So that's a, a, a sort of, in many ways, disappointing conclusion for many people, right? Fundamentally, not being able to know something is never a very satisfying conclusion. But the argument that I make for it, I think, is extremely compelling and hard to refute. But surely that's the case uh, with life that we recognize in, in nature. The, the idea that a plant has a sense of self that could be argued if you watch a plant over a certain period of time and speed that up, you can see it uh, moving in relationship to the light and closing itself up in relationship to the environment. It, fundamentally, it has some form of interaction with the environment. It's, it, it has a feedback loop that it goes through. And, and all of these things together seem really important in understanding whether something has agency or not. I mean, why is it so important for us to assign agency to non-human objects? The reason that we would want to be able to assign agency to non-human objects is that we're starting to see technologies getting deployed that have quite a bit of autonomy. They operate largely independently of human operators. And in fact, they can develop in such a way that they become quite disconnected from the humans who developed them. And consequently, they could have effects where we're going to have an extremely hard time finding anyone to blame for those effects, right? I, I mean, people talk about you know, self-driving cars and, you know, they, you know, the damage that they can do when, when an accident occurs. Uh, I think that's one of many things that could happen with technologies that have a certain amount of autonomy. And I think that we're, you know, very quickly going to reach the point where you're simply not going to be able to find a human being on whom you can pin the blame for something that went wrong. In that case, who do we hold responsible? That question, I think, becomes very, very nuanced. And one of the things that I dive into in my book is that in order to hold an agent responsible for something, you have to assume that that agent is able to reason about causation. That agent needs to be able to have said, well, if I do this, I'm going to cause this. If I do something different, I will cause this something different. Well, it turns out that reasoning about causation is something that actually can't occur in an objective way. It can only be subjective. You have to have a first-person self in order to be able to reason about causation. And the fact that you can't ever know whether these machines that we build will have a first-person self means we can't ever know whether they will be able to reason about causation, which means we can't ever know for sure whether we should be assigning the responsibility for actions 
right? So it's in, in some ways, it's a very unsatisfying conclusion, but it means that, you know, as a culture, we're going to have to find a way to manage these more autonomous technologies and figure out how they're going to operate within our cultural, societal, structural, legal systems, for example. Well, if those things are so hard to identify, how then do we deal with the issue of things like machine rights? I think that those are things that are ultimately going to become cultural decisions. They're going to be part of the systems of justice that we create and so forth. I think we're a long way off from ever wanting to give rights to machines. And we may never get there because, you know, we may always take a speciest approach, which is that the only creatures that deserve rights are humans. And that's because it's the humans who are in control of those rights. But even humans are not like that, right? We, we do give certain rights to animals, for example. And yeah, I think those are things that are really part of a cultural evolution over the very long run. I mean, you try and deal with some of these questions, oddly enough, through the example of AI-generated art. And we've had uh, Arthur Miller um, on the podcast who's spoken about machine creativity. And the question always comes up of agency. When it comes to AI-generated art, who is the artist? Is it the non-human agent who created the artwork? Or was it the human who set up the parameters of the software to allow it to generate this final form or picture or painting in some cases. You go one step further and and say that in actual fact, it's not just a challenge of whether it's the human artist or the non-human artist. In actual fact, it might be a multitude of non-human and human entities that could be the originator of that art. I just wonder if you could explain that example a little bit further. Yeah, so I, I talk about this famous portrait that was uh, created by these three French guys who call themselves Obvious, the three French artists. They have an AI-generated portrait that they sold at Christie's for some $430,000 or so. And they put it forth as the first AI-generated painting. There's a couple of questions, right? One is to assign, well, who is the artist? But it's also an important question, what is the artwork? To me, the artwork there was actually much more a piece of conceptual art. The idea of a first AI-created painting was the artwork. And I think it was a brilliant artwork because it created this enormous fury and discussion, you know, and controversy about, uh, well, you know, these guys just downloaded some software written by a teenager and largely used it unchanged and created this painting. So shouldn't the teenager have been the real creator? Or, well, the teenager was using a technique that was developed by Ian Goodfellow called called GAN. Uh, shouldn't Ian Goodfellow get some of the credit for this, right? And so we have a tendency as humans to really want to oversimplify any creative work and say, you know, well, it had one creator. I think this is what we do, for example, with software, with this uh, digital creationism hypothesis, right? We want to single out the one creator of this artifact. You know, it was Zuckerberg who created Facebook. We, we have a very strong tendency to want to do that as humans, and it's a, it's a mistake. No piece of creative work was created by one individual. Every piece of creative work evolves in a context where the context hugely influences the outcome. And, you know, if you think of the portrait that sold for $430,000 as a piece of conceptual art, that concept, these three guys who were the first to put such a portrait onto Christie's, if that was their creative work, that was a really small delta on everything that was around, but it was a very clever delta, right? And perhaps they did deserve to get some $400,000. Well, they got less than that because there's big commissions and stuff, but this feeds into the overall theme in my book about about a coevolutionary process, right? We sh- we've got to stop trying to pin every development on a single creator because the story is much more complicated than that. 
And, and because that story is much more complicated, that means we have to reapproach how we look at technology. And, and one of the ways we can do that is through something called digital humanism, by taking a more human-centric or perhaps a, a life-centric approach to technology. How do you propose that ultimately, given our new understanding of how we relate with technology, ultimately, how should that change our the way in which we study and approach the understanding of technology through something like digital humanism? Yeah, I really like this term, digital humanism, which I um, credit to uh, Hannes Wertner, who was the, at the time that he coined this term, he was the dean of uh, computer science at the Technical University of Vienna. And Hannes organized a series of workshops on this topic where his goal, he's a computer scientist uh, like me, but his goal was to get a much more sophisticated dialogue happening between computer scientists, among computer scientists, and between computer scientists and sociologists and psychologists and scientists in other fields. I think I proposed to him that this was a little bit analogous to the Vienna Circle and the effect that it had on the development of kind of the philosophy of science in the early 20th century. What we need is a new philosophy of technology that is much more integrated with our understanding of culture and human processes and human systems like economics and politics. Those are things that are well beyond the skill set of people in any one of the disciplines that they touch on, right? You do need to have people who have a sophisticated understanding of the technology involved because otherwise you get very oversimplified interpretations of the technology. But you also need to have people with very sophisticated understandings of culture and how human culture develops and, and of, uh, of economics and of psychology and of biology. And all of these things need to be part of the, of the story. And much the way, you know, the Vienna Circle in the early 20th century brought together philosophers and scientists and social scientists to get a more sophisticated approach to to science. At that time, you know, the crisis that it was dealing with was the enormous power that science was acquiring with its ability to create atomic bombs, for example, right, which hadn't happened yet at the time of the Vienna Circle, but they were coming. And people were understanding this enormous power that was requiring that scientists had to grow up, in a sense, and start engaging with the broader world around them. Digital humanism is saying that the technologists today need to grow up and start engaging in a much more sophisticated way with the world around us, and that we need to be elevating the level of our dialogue and our discourse about how technology develops and how we can affect it and how it's affecting us. And, and let's make sure that AI also has a place at that table when it comes to discussing digital humanism. Edward A. Lee, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Luke. I always enjoy talking with you. Thank you to Edward for sharing his insights into the coevolution of humans and machines. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, The Coevolution, The Intertwined Futures of Humans and Machines, available from MIT Press now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.